Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis, part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And I was thinking this morning about how many demands that we have on our time as women and what a great thing that it is that we can spend time studying God's Word together. So thank you for being here. There's a um, classic movie, a Tom Hanks movie, that actually came out in the year 2000 uh, called Castaway. I don't know whether you've ever seen it or not. When you're looking through Netflix on a Friday night trying to decide uh, something to watch. Um, but it, the movie always makes me feel bad for anyone named Wilson. And if you've seen, if you've seen the movie, you know why I say that. Because Hanks is stranded on an uninhabited desert island for years. He's there because he was part of a plane crash in a storm. He washes up on the shore by himself. Himself. And he is completely alone for four years on this desert island with a volleyball that washes up. And he makes this volleyball his companion, and he names him Wilson. Uh, I think we have a slide of Wilson uh, right here. Uh, he talks to him. He has a relationship with Wilson. And it reminds me uh, that when we have desperate times in our lives, we sometimes resort to the desperate measures of making a volleyball our only friend. Um, desperate times definitely can lead us to desperate measures. And by the way, I want you to know that this volleyball Wilson sold for $300,000 following the release of the movie. So um, Wilson uh, didn't resort to it desperate end here, but I kind of think of the guy that paid $300,000 for Wilson did come to a desperate end. Uh, he definitely uh, did something I probably wouldn't have done. Now, we're going to take a unique dive today. This is a very unusual chapter. I think you already know that. We're going to take a unique dive into another desperate time. In chapter 28, we see the Philistines gather to attack Israel. We see a desperate King Saul resort to an incredibly disobedient and desperate measure. So you probably already have your Bibles open to chapter 28. So let's read together, starting in verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well. I will make you my bodyguard uh, for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. His heart trembled greatly, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams, by Urm, or by prophet. 
And then Saul said to his servant, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there's a medium at an indoor. So last week, we saw when we looked at David that he had made the bad decision to seek refuge from Saul, not in the Lord, but in the Philistines. Very bad choice. And now we see that the Philistines have actually gathered to attack Israel. And one of the reasons for the timing of that campaign right now is probably David himself. Achish believes that David has been going out on these raiding parties, if you remember of Vanita's lesson last week, and attacking Israel. So Achish probably believes that Israel is weakened here and that the Philistines are strengthened because they have David the great warrior in their camp. And David's response to Achish right here, his command to go with him and fight with his army against his own people, Israel, is another example of David's subterfuge. We've seen David um, make some uh, questionable statements in the past. We see it here again because his words are ambiguous. They're ambiguous. Does he mean Achish will see what David can do for the Philistine army here? Or does he mean that Achish will see what David can do to the Philistine army as they attack his very own people? Now, David intends to miscommunicate here, I believe, but Achish clearly takes his words right here as a signal of David's loyalty, and he offers him the highest honor. Be my personal bodyguard for life. There's no greater honor than to be bodyguard of the king. Now, we're not going to see the outcome of David's desperate times here as he's poised to go out and fight his own people until we look at chapter 29 next week with Lynn because our story here pivots away from David after those first few verses pivots to Saul and to Samuel. And we actually learned back in chapter 25 when we looked at that, that Samuel had died. We've seen that before. Israel mourned him and they buried him in Ramah. And that's confirmed here in 28. And it's an important piece of information here for us because this second recounting of Samuel's death makes us know without a doubt Samuel's dead. He's dead, he's buried, he's mourned. There's no chance for us to assume as we continue on in this unique story that somehow Samuel might still be alive. Uh, We also see here another piece of information that's gonna be important as our story moves forward, and that is that for once in his life, Saul has obeyed the Lord's law, and he's banned uh, those people who deal with evil spirits. It calls them mediums and necromancers here in the ESV. Saul has taken God's law to heart for once and banned them from Israel. Look at Deuteronomy 18.10 on your verse sheet. This is God's law, and it says, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omen, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations to the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So 
Saul has already done this, driven out the mediums and the necromancers. He also understands that um, not only are they not allowed in Israel, they are banned. Uh, they are strictly forbidden because it's punishable by death. Look at uh, Leviticus 20:27. 20, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. So anyone who decides to disobey Saul's law is under the death penalty. Um, now, we also see right here in these first few verses that the Philistines have definitely assembled to make not just a little raid on Israel, but a total all-out assault to wipe out Israel. Um, they are camped at Shunem, which is about 75 miles north of Gabeah on your map. If you look at your map now or later, you can see it's up by um, the Sea of Galilee. It's pretty far north in the territory. Um, and Saul gathers his forces just south of Shunem at Gilboa on your map there. Now Shunem, the reason they've gathered at Shunem is because it is right next to a major trade route through Israel's territory. Um, and the Philistines want to control this trade route not only for revenue, of course, but they also want it for political purposes because um, even in our world, we know that whoever controls trade has significant leverage over other people groups as well. We see that with our supply chains now. Whoever can manage to get toilet paper to the grocery store, that's a win, isn't it? So Gilboa, where Saul gathers with the Israelites, is just south of Shunem. And it allows Saul to do one thing. He can walk up on a rise at Gilboa and look down on the Philistine army. He can discover how many troops are there, how they're massing, what weapons they have. So he's able to get a good look from it at them from his position, and what he sees terrifies him, terrifies him. And instead of readying Israel for battle, which is what you would expect a king and commander to do, begin to make a battle plan, begin to gather weapons, what do we see Saul do here? He panics. He panics. Saul, the king, panics. He's not prepared to cope with what he sees as he looks out on the Philistine army. And um, his desperate move, his first desperate move here, is to actually try to contact the Lord. He reaches out to the Lord for divine intervention because when Samuel, his prophet, was alive, it was Samuel who gave Saul direction through the Lord. But when he reaches out to the Lord here, He's forgotten a few things about his relationship with the Lord. Um, he's forgotten all the times that he's completely ignored the law's direction as it came through Samuel uh, to him. He's forgotten how he offended the Lord mightily by offering a sacrifice without waiting for Samuel. He's also forgotten the time he completely disobeyed the Lord's order to wipe out the Amalekites and all of their stock and their king. He's forgotten how the kingdom was taken away from him because he blatantly ignored the Lord's direction with the Amalekites. 
Another significant thing he's forgotten is he has the blood of 85 of the Lord's own priests on his hands and all of their families. He's forgotten his relationship with the Lord is broken as he reaches out desperately and foolishly hoping that the Lord will intervene now and save him. You know, all the Lord has ever really asked from Saul is his obedience. That's all he asked from the time he anointed him king. And honestly, it's his obedience that that's all it would have taken for Saul's relationship with God to be growing and vibrant, for Saul to have a relationship that would result in the God's presence in his life when he needed him. Look at what Samuel said to Saul after he ignored the Lord's instruction in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and, and to listen to the fat of rams. And for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as inequity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You know, as a result of his disobedience in the past, Saul hears no word from the Lord in the present. He's refused to obey before when the Lord has given him instructions and guidance over and over again. So the Lord refuses to waste his words on Saul now. It's kind of like us as moms when we've been all day long telling our children what to do and then they run in and say, where's my baseball jersey? I want to go la 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 la. I mean, you haven't listened to one thing I've said all day, but now you need me. Um, the same is true with the Lord. Uh, the Lord refuses to waste his guidance on Saul now. And in desperation, Saul's hypocrisy here we see is actually in full bloom because he seeks out in secret the medium that he's publicly banned. He is an incredible hypocrite throughout his whole kingship, and we see that in a mighty way here. Saul's lack of a pursuit of a relationship with the Lord during his kingship is truly such a sharp practice to now, how he now actively pursues evil. He has not pursued the Lord, and now he actively pursues evil because he seeks out this banned medium. And chapter 28 is truly one of the darkest moments in Saul's kingship. You know, many of us have also felt desperate in our lives, haven't we? Uh, maybe not for a lengthy period of time, but I think most of us have had our desperate moments when we've had an unexpected illness. Maybe it's infertility issues we've struggled with or someone in our family has struggled with. Um, rebellious kiddos, they can truly make you feel desperate at times. And certainly a marriage that is sliding downhill brings those feelings of desperation. You know, and it is in the desperate times 
that our true relationship with the Lord is revealed. I've thought a lot about this lately. You know, it's not our public moments when we walk into church with our hair combed and our makeup on and a smile on our face. It's not our Facebook posts where we do post a praise or a favorite scripture. Those are not the things that really show the depth uh, of our relationship with the Lord. But our true and honest relationship uh, where we depend on him and obey him and seek his face uh, is actually revealed in our desperate times. That's when we see how deep and real our relationship with the Lord truly is. So Saul teaches us here a great lesson because you know what Saul teaches us? He teaches us to be prepared. He teaches us to be prepared for life's desperate moments because in this world, they're going to come. Be prepared to walk steadfastly with the Lord when we get that unexpected phone call. We don't have time to stop and say, hold on just a minute, I'm gonna go back and renew my relationship with the Lord at that point. and as we prepare for those, and we prepare for those times by walking diligently and obediently today and tomorrow and every day after with the Lord, because that's how we grow our relationship and nurture our relationship. You know, Saul poured gasoline and lit a match on his relationship with the Lord by his disobedience. We can nurture and grow our relationship with the Lord by walking obediently with him every day so that that relationship is strong and deep and real when we need him in our desperate times. I shared in a podcast recently um, about my experience uh, of suffering or a desperate time in my life without the Lord before I was a believer. And I can tell you with all my heart that there is nothing as hopeless as desperate times absent the Lord's voice and absent the Lord's presence. So let's be prepared. Let's just do it. Let's just walk obediently today and every day with him, nurturing our relationship and growing our faith so that in a desperate moment, we're guided by him. Let's read some more about um, our unique story here. Look at verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, and he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done? How he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers of the land. Why then are you laying a trap for me to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Okay, so Saul disguises himself here because he knows that this medium that his men have discovered at Endor, uh, nobody really spoke to why these guys knew she was at Endor, but obviously they had knowledge that there was a medium there. Um, So he disguises himself because he knows she's not going to help him if she recognizes him as Saul because he's the one that has pronounced the death sentence and upheld the Levitical 
biblical law. And apparently she doesn't recognize him at first, but she is a little bit concerned here. This is a trap. She thinks, aha, someone has come from Saul and they are trying to trap me. But Saul, who's the biggest hypocrite ever with a capital H, he calms her fears here by granting her clemency by invoking the Lord's name for breaking the law. I mean, it takes a minute for that to sink in. I'm granting you clemency from the Lord's law by invoking the Lord's name. None of Saul's actions ever match up with spiritual reality. We see that over and over again in his kingship. Here's spiritual reality. Here's Saul over here making up his own reality. He's doing something so contrary to God's law while calling on the name of the Lord. Um, You know, it reminds me, as I think so much about Saul in the past few weeks, it reminds me of the people in our world who do everything everything possible to cancel God out of our world. They want to cancel God out of our schools, cancel God out of work, cancel God out of our government, cancel God out of social media until there's some sort of crisis. And then all over Facebook, all I saw was pray for the Ukraine. Now, these were the same people that had been canceling God out for the last few years. That's who Saul reminds me of. He's canceled God out of his life, but whenever he needs something, he calls on the name of the Lord. So what we see here in our story is with Saul's assurance, the medium does what he asks, and she goes to try to communicate with uh, Saul's prophet Samuel. And this is where our story gets really weird. Look at uh, verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Um, the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman cried. The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? She said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, Well, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. So the most shocked person in the room when Samuel appears is the medium is the medium. Now, this is the person that has supposedly made her living by contacting the dead. And when dead Samuel actually begins to appear before her, um, she's completely astounded, doesn't know what to say. And her surprise actually gives us a great interpretation here, helps us to understand this, because it confirms for us a couple of truths that we need to um, really stand on. And the first uh, thing that it confirms to us is this is the first time she'd actually experienced a true dead person responding to her. This was a new experience because her past experience 
experience as a medium who claimed to contact the dead was by drawing on demonic powers to communicate with evil spirits that were simply masquerading as the dead. So apparently if you went in and wanted to talk to your mother-in-law, she would conjure up an evil spirit that would act like your mother-in-law and you would be deceived. That's what she had done all of her life. So her surprise is pretty overwhelming when she actually encounters Samuel. Um, and it also confirms for us that this is God's intervention here. This a divine, is a divine moment in Saul's life um, because if it wasn't a divine intervention, moment, she would not have been surprised. It would have been what she was normally used to. She encountered evil spirits all the time. It wouldn't have shocked her a bit, but she's shocked because she is encountering the divine here. It's not her, and she knows it. It's God at work allowing Saul to have a vision of Samuel's spirit or Samuel's spirit to appear with a prophetic message for him. This is a divine work of Saul, of God in Saul's life, not the work of the medium of Endor. Um, we also don't know here exactly how Samuel appears before Saul. Uh, it could be Samuel's spirit that's been separated from his body at death, or it could simply be some kind of vision that God allows them to see. And um, some of you may have read things. I read countless theologians. None of them have any explanation. It is clearly impossible to know exactly how God allowed Samuel to appear here, but we do know that it was Samuel himself. He, he was dead and buried. This is not an evil spirit appearing. And when the medium sees Samuel, she knows immediately who's asked to see Samuel. It's Saul, because Samuel was Saul's prophet. And the medium uses a, a word here as she says, when she tells him what she sees, she says she sees a God coming up out of the earth. Um, and Hebrew, this word God that she uses means uh, a divine being or a judge or a prophet connected to the divine. And that's a perfect description of Samuel because he was both a judge and a prophet and he was connected to the divine. Um, it's another clue for us because she uses this word that this is a divine revelation um, for Saul. Um, and her description of his appearance is what convinces Saul it's actually Samuel. He's very familiar with Samuel's appearance. He obviously knows the robe that she's describing because it was the robe that he grabbed hold of, tore a piece off of when Samuel told him that the kingdom had been torn for him. And this realization that it's Samuel, of course, takes him uh, to his face. He bows before Samuel. Uh, possibly in humility and respect, but I also think he's bowing here in desperation, in desperation because of his circumstances. And the other thing that we don't know here, you may have asked, is it's unclear whether Saul actually sees Samuel or whether he just hears his voice. He may have, it may have been the medium that first saw Samuel and then Saul sees Samuel, or it may have been the medium that had the vision and Samuel, and 
Saul simply hears his voice. Um, but I think it also made me smile a little bit, Samuel's reaction. He's not impressed here uh, by Saul's reverence, by his bowing down. He knows Saul's well. Um, and he's also a little bit grumpy here. Didn't you think Samuel was a little bit grumpy? He said, why have you disturbed me uh, uh, by bringing me up? And when we read that, it begs the question, where is Samuel coming from? Where is Samuel coming from? Where was he? Where did uh, God and his divine revelation bring Samuel from? So I want to hit the pause button here on our story and just talk for a little bit about that answer. Because um, as New Testament believers, I've taken a poll recently as I've been working on this and asked, where do you think Samuel was? Where did he come up with? And as New Testament believers, we, our first reaction is, well, he was in heaven. I mean, that is just kind of off the top of everybody's head. But that's actually not correct. So I want to sort out here a little bit of the differences between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. Now, there are some things that are alike for Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. Uh, we're both justified and made righteous by our faith. Old Testament sa saints are made righteous and justified by their faith in God the Father, by Yahweh. We see that throughout the Old Testament, and we actually see it in the New Testament, too. Look at Romans 4, 3 on your verse sheet. This this is Paul, and he says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified and made righteous by his faith, and along with Abraham, all Old Testament believers were made righteous by their faith in Yahweh, not by their works, not by the law, and the same thing is true with Samuel. Samuel had a vibrant, incredible relationship with the Lord from the time he was conceived, actually, probably, um, and he is justified by his faith. Now, we as New Testament believers are also justified by our faith, but our faith is in the blood of Jesus. It's by Jesus, dead, uh, buried, and resurrected. Uh, that's in Ephesians. By grace, we have been saved through our faith. It's not from works. So we have that in common with Old Testament believers. We're both justified by our faith. Um, but um, as New Testament believers, we are going to go to heaven and be with Jesus when we die. It's all over the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. I don't have it on your verse sheet, but it says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And as you read the account this Easter of Jesus' crucifixion, you're going to uh, hear him say to the thief next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He is going to heaven with Jesus because of his faith. Um, but in the Old Testament, we don't see them talking about heaven. We see them talking about Sheol, 
S-H-E-O-L. It's uh, six, seen 63 times in the Old Testament. We see it frequently with David and it, in the Psalms, and it literally means place of the dead. And you had a chart on your table today to give you a little visual. Uh, Curtis, you can put that chart on the screen for me just so you'll know what we're talking about there. You'll see that on that chart uh, down there at the bottom, we see Sheol as the place of the dead in the Old Testament. And Sheol is actually divided into two parts with a divide in between, a space in between. And we know that from Jesus' account in Luke 16. And we don't have time to read that whole story, so read it later if you're interested. But look at Luke 16, 22 on your verse sheet. And this is Jesus talking. And he says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. What he's describing here is that picture of Sheol, the Old Testament place of the dead. It is literally divided into two parts, Abraham's bosom, where Old Testament believers who were justified by their faith in God the Father went after their death. That's where the poor man Lazarus is at Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. Um, then the other half of Sheol is Hades, where unbelieving Old Testament people went after their death, and that is where our rich man is in Luke 16. Now, we have one more difference between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, and that is the truth that as the church, as New Testament saints, we are going to be raptured by Jesus before the beginning of the tribulation. Whereas Old Testament saints are going to remain in Sheol, and they are going to be resurrected at the second coming of Christ before the beginning of the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign on the earth. So... You're going to have a lot of time later to contemplate all this, I guess. But we are going to go back to our story now, knowing that Samuel has been called up from where? Sheol, Abraham's bosom. That is where Samuel is in our story. That's where he's been called up from by God himself to give one last prophecy. So Samuel who's come up from Abraham's bosom, let's read what he has to say here, beginning in verse 16. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, 
you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistine. So we see here that Samuel simply has been disturbed from Abraham's bosom to come up and recap for Saul what Saul should already know. The Lord has stopped speaking to Saul because Saul has stopped listening to him. Long ago, Saul has stopped listening for him. And you know what's interesting to me about Saul is he's always been so clueless and unrepentant repentant and his disobedience because here he is consulting a medium who's been outlawed by the penalty of death and he's whining and crying to Samuel that the Lord won't speak to me. But Samuel's response um, isn't the sympathy or the divine intervention that Saul is hoping for. Samuel does not rescue him here with uh, divine words, which is what Saul is hoping for. Instead, he lays out the greatest piece of evidence of Saul's disobedience. There's a lot of evidence, but here Samuel gives him the greatest, which is that he did not carry out the Lord's wrath against Amalek. And there's a consequence to that. The kingdom has been given to David, and his relationship with the Lord is broken. Now, Samuel doesn't predict a victory for Israel here, but he predicts shockingly Israel's major defeat by the Philistines here. And he also predicts what he talks about here is when he says, tomorrow you will be with me. He's predicting Saul's death on the death of his sons, which is also a penalty, a consequence in Saul's life. You know, our sin and our disobedience doesn't just affect us, does it? It affects our whole families. Now, the Lord's penalty of death here may seem severe, but we have to remember we have never seen any evidence of Saul's in the scriptures ever that Saul truly rep repented of his disobedience as king. Um, in chapter 15, when Samuel confronts Saul about his sin with Amalek, all he does is make excuses. We talked about this in earlier lessons. Saul has never, ever been heartbroken over his disobedience. And anytime he does make a tiny attempt at repentance, it looks feeble. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 21 on your verse sheet. And this is Saul explaining his disobedience to Samuel. But the people took up the spoil and sheep and oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then he says this to Samuel in 24, 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your word, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You know, King Saul is always full of excuses. He's never full of remorse. We don't see that one time in the scriptures. Uh, instead of heartfelt repentance, when he first sees the Philistines here gather at Shunem to attack him, what does he do? He could have fallen on his face in repentance. He could have begged for God's mercy, and our God is merciful and kind and frequently responds to our repentance. Um, he would have spared him. But what is Saul's choice? Saul chooses disobedience again. He chooses it again, choosing to resort to evil 
to consult the dead. Look at Proverbs 26.11 with me. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That is a perfect description of King Saul. Foolish Saul returns to his disobedience again and again and again. And God's death penalty should not surprise even Saul here because Saul knows that the law, what the law says about mediums and those who consult them. Look at Leviticus 26 on your sheet. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and cut them off from among his people. Saul's death penalty is a consequence of his desperate measures, his continued disobedience to God's commands and precepts, because anyone in Saul's world who consults the spirit world receives death, and that includes King Saul. His desperate measure of pursuing evil exposes the depth of his disobedience. He's not just breaking the little laws that God has given the people of Israel. He's breaking the laws that concern the death penalty and the final consequence of his life of disobedience is death. You know, just like Saul, our desperate measures, the things that we run to when we have desperate times in our life, and I, you might take some time later to think about where is the first place I go when I have desperate times in my life? It's an interesting exercise. But those places that we run to is going to expose the depth of our disobedience as well. We can make excuses. We can be Saul. Um, we can be masters at making excuses. Or we can wear disguises, just like Saul did on his trip uh, to see the medium to cover our disobedience. We can disguise ourselves um, just like Saul did. But you know, God sees our disobedience every single time, doesn't He? And it breaks His heart. It breaks his heart. We can never hide our disobedience from the Lord. Um, but we don't have to be Saul, pursuing disobedience all the way till the end, until it brings about our death. We can repent, and we can return to the Lord whenever our disobedience is revealed to us immediately, immediately. One of my favorite worship songs, I've played it over and over again this Easter season, is... Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life. And that's the truth for me. He has saved me from my disobedience by the blood of Jesus. We have the blood of Jesus to apply to any and every act of disobedience in our lives when we turn to the Lord in repentance. Look at Joel 2.3. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he will relents over disaster. He relents over the disaster of our disobedience whenever 
we repent and return to him. What a blessing. Okay, let's read the last few verses of our most interesting story here. They're curious as well. Look at verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There were no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him. He listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Um, our story ends here with her um, uh, cooking a feast for him, killing the fattened calf for him. Um, so we see here that Samuel does not give Saul the answers that he wants. Um, he reminds him of his rejection as king, and he tells him the truth. Tomorrow, the battle is going to end in Israel's defeat and the death of you and your family. And we see Saul again fall on his face in fear. How many times have we seen Saul? Instead of repent, we've seen him fearful. And he's also apparently here, this is another strange part of the story, he's weak from hunger. For some reason, he's been fasting. We don't know why he's been fasting. It could be because of the battle that's coming, or it could be that it was that manipulative measure of uh, trying to manipulate the Lord into giving him an answer. He hasn't been obedient before, so now he'll fast and God will answer him. Um, and the strange part of this story continues because we have the disobedient medium, the illegal medium, is deciding to play hostess to this disobedient, unrepentant king. She decides that in his fear he will will be strengthened by food. Um, and she reminds him here that she has trusted him, that she's listened to him, and she's obeyed him. And now she urges him to do the same thing to her, to trust her, to listen to her, to obey her. And he does. He does. If Saul had given that same attention to the Lord throughout his kingship, if he had trusted the Lord, if he had obeyed the Lord, if he had listened to the voice of the Lord, his kingship and his life would have been different. She goes on to prepare for him a meal fit for a king, indicative of a feast because she butchers that calf, and this is probably his last meal. So his final meal is prepared by a woman who communicates evil spirits. Um, these final few verses really highlight the incongruency of Saul's entire life as king. Who's he listening to? Who's he obeying? It's not the Lord. It's the woman who uses evil spirits to impersonate the dead. That's who he has suddenly decided to give his ear to. Saul should have been executing her for witchcraft rather than sitting at her table eating a meal for a king. 
What we see here, what we understand about Saul and his life is that he has so hardened his heart to the voice of the Lord that he's letting the voice of evil nourish and minister him on his very last day. His desperate end, which is going to come the very next day, is the result of a heart that's hardened to the voice of God. What a very sad place to be on the last day of your life. And certainly it's a lesson to each one of us in this room. We all need to pay attention to Saul's lesson here. A voice hardened to the heart of God is likely to have a desperate end. It's likely to spend, up, spend its very last day listening to the voice of evil. But when we open our hearts to God, and to God's word, which Saul had every chance to do over the decades of his kingship. When we commit to listening to the voice of the Lord, which Saul had every chance to do, we don't end up like Saul. On our last day, listening to the wrong voice, staring at a desperate end face to face. Instead, if we hear and heed God's voice, our lives are going to reflect his glory and not the discipline of a desperate end. Look at Luke eleven twenty eight on your verse sheet. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Pray with me. Lord, that's our prayer today, that we would be blessed because we are women who hear and heed your word. We obey you, we listen to you, we seek you out, we grow and nurture our relationship with you so that on our very last day, what we're going to hear is your voice saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.